Hello and thank you for joining us for this edition of the Stratfor podcast, focused on geopolitics and world affairs from stratfor.com. I'm your host, Ben Sheen. Beneath the headlines about Brexit, Russian efforts to expand its area of influence and the latest news from the White House lies an evolving story that has shaped the direction of the international system for much of the last century, and that's global trade. From NAFTA to TPP and beyond, in this podcast, we're looking at the future of global trade with Stratfor Vice President of Global Analysis, Riva Gujon, Global Analyst, Matthew Bay, Economy Analyst, Mark Fleming-Williams, and Science and Technology Analyst, Rebecca Keller. Thanks for joining us. Hello, my name is Riva Gujon, and I'm joined by my colleagues today on Stratfor's Global Analyst team, Matthew Bay, Becca Keller, and Mark Fleming-Williams. And the topic of debate is, what is the future of global trade? And obviously, this is a massive topic with lots of questions uh, entailed. But this is something we've been talking about for a while. And there have been lots of these big structural shifts that have been underway in the international system for really decades now. It's it's just when the political effects really start to become more visible through elections and policy battles that the world really starts to take notice. And so some of those big forces that we've been discussing is, you know, China's rebalancing after more than three decades of rapid growth off a low-wage export-led model, its massive appetite for resources that came with that. We've talked about aging demographics in, in rich developed countries, impacting the size and productivity of labor pools overall, and how technological adaptations feed into that with more automation, big data mining, interconnectivity between devices, how we transport goods from point A to point B, all these things that speak to more efficiencies overall. But a lot of low-wage workers belonging to industries of, of yesterday are, are left in the lurch, and that's where really those political consequences really catch up. And that's caught up to the United States, the pivot of the international system. And we see now this protectionist trade agenda coming from the White House. A lot of talk about leveling the playing field, getting companies to come back home, invest more at home, hire more Americans and export more. But I'd like to open up the conversation with a really basic question, really, on what's the reality check on the U.S. protectionist agenda Matt, you want to start us off? Yeah. So I think if we look at the U.S. protectionist agenda, just you just think about it, we're talking about 20 years of global trade just kind of integrating itself into deep supply chains that are globally centric, whether it be just the NAFTA-based ones for the auto sector, for example, or the electronics-based global value chains in, say, Asia. These are all deeply integrated, and they've been organically developing for 20, 25 years, sometimes even longer. And you just think about untangling all of those, you're going to have a lot of massive, painful adjustments in the short term as you do that. And that's something that Trump is already running against those entrenched interests, whether it be from the energy sector or the auto sector and all these other different global industries. So when we talk about the United States actually being able to separate and disentangle itself with a lot of these international agreements that it's been working on, that's going to be a really difficult thing. So we can talk about President Trump trying to put into place long-term initiatives that would drive investment into the United States, which could over time just as organically as these became much more integrated supply chains, kind of organically disentangle them. You can start to see that, but it can't be done something quickly. It certainly can't be done just in his the first term of his administration or probably even the second term of his administration. Um, and then one of the other things that's just developing as we look at this kind of globally is we are now having a lot of transitions in the global manufacturing sector in terms of technology. So, I mean, for example, we can talk about jobs coming back from the United States in the auto sector, but the auto sector is one of the first that's kind of, you know, all gung-ho on the whole robotics thing. 
that's something that started to develop even in the 1980s. And now we're seeing those kinds of technologies emerge more and more in other sectors. So it's going to be, it's not necessarily then that revival of the United States manufacturing sector is going to mean, you know, those jobs are coming back. It's a lot more complicated than that. And I think that's one of the things that Trump is going to have problems realizing his overall goals when he tries to sell it back in re-elections or even beyond that. And and companies are going to be tending to their bottom line at the end of the day. And when you're looking for efficiencies, certainly technology is a huge part of that solution, which, again, does not lead to job growth in the way that the rhetoric is uh, promising. Um, Becca, I mean, as, this is an area that you cover in a lot of depth on how technology is such an unrelenting force in this domain. And what are some of the most important technologies that you see influencing global trade patterns in the future? Uh, Matthew always already touched on one of them, and that's automation and the continued um, growth of automation and artificial intelligence, the use of big data connected, the Internet of Things, all of those kind of computerized technologies, for lack of a better term. And, and really, that's what comes back to the point that Matthew was making. It's that the rhetoric can't be met because even if we do bring job growth back, it's not going to be the same jobs. It's going to require a, a shift in training practices in the United States. And, and you still have that population that's hurt by the transition, that not necessarily angry, but that, that frustrated population that we saw rise up during the United States election, because it has been frustrating to undergo this transition. It's just almost unavoidable, uh, as sad as that may seem. One of the things to think about, though, is that we're talking about you know automation as a concept and digitization of the different sectors as being now increasing a, a increasing portion of trade going on. So when we talk about new kind of initiatives in trade, we're not, even when President Trump tries to go on his protectionist agenda, there are still elements of a pro-free trade agenda. It's just done in a very nuanced fashion. So you know, modernizing a, a bunch of these trade deals, many of them like WTO was signed now 23 years ago. It makes a lot of sense to at least update those. And now you can do that with a protectionist stance to some degree, but at at the same time, there's a lot of drive and just a need to update a lot of these deals to begin with. It's almost no longer trade of, of physical goods, but trade of information. And that's something that we will look for in, in the updating of those agreements. So let's talk about that a, a bit more. Um, you know, this isn't a complete reversal of the free trade regime. As as Matt says, it's, it's a protectionist layer to it. And we do see coming out of this White House a philosophy that multilateral institutions are, are holding the U.S. down to some degree, that there's a need to return to bilateral negotiations where players like the U.S. can have more leverage, make more deals, even if that means ceding strategic ground to big competitors like China. And so to understand some of these bigger questions on the evolution of global trade, why don't we start with how we got here? What is the existing global order that many of free trade proponents are trying to defend and where we could see things going? Mark? I mean, it's interesting. We're talking about protectionism here. Um, I mean, protectionism obviously is is a is is a kind of it's a sliding scale. Um, and at one end, you've got kind of in, in completely closed economies with huge tariff barriers, which are which are protecting um, domestic economies from outside competition. Um, and it's interesting that that's kind of where we as a global economy have come from um, in historically. Um, so the 19th century is very much all about that, and all the all the countries, apart from with the with the UK as a as a big exception, um, countries were were largely protectionist, and this this um, kind of carried on through the first half of the of, of the last century of the twentieth century, um, and particularly the thirties, where, where we see after the uh, Wall Street crash and the depression, we see a lot of a lot of barriers going up between countries. So protectionism was a was a was a, a regular um, issue back then that we've that we've had since World War Two. 
um, has been this very different global picture, which was very much kind of created or infused by by the US, where it's managed to get every all the countries gradually on board to a kind of global free trade agenda where, where all sides could um, kind of gradually bring down barriers between each other. So that's that's very much from from 1945 onwards. Um, but then what you see is a, a a kind of splintering of that order as well. So following the Cold War, there was a little bit less urgency towards these, um, or a bit of a lost momentum towards the the kind of the GATT, which is the original trade institution. I mean, first of all, so immediately after the Cold War, GATT turns into the WTO in 19, 1995, which is uh, a, an increase in integration. But then following that, we've the wheels have slightly come off in this kind of global-focused free trade altogether um, model. And so as a result of, of that slowing down, we've, we kind of break down to things like the TPP and the TTIP, which are these kind of multi-regional um, uh, ambitious attempts to, to get um, large groups of countries together. And then we've the latest thing is we've seen that breaking down as well to, to much more, as you say, of a, of a kind of, this, is the, this seems to be the latest step that we're now moving towards a kind of bilateral agreement. So in some ways we came from protectionism, but in some ways we have, we've cr- created this kind of, this free trade or the US largely created this free trade world in the last, in the last 70 years but it's been splintering so in a way trump does kind of fit into that into that picture as well that kind of long-term splintering model so the format of free trade negotiations is is shifting but not necessarily the content and i think we see that especially in looking at how nafta is going to be renegotiated which is probably going to be probably the most revealing um, negotiation in how we expect this u.s administration to layer on that more protectionist agenda but still abiding by that, albeit splintered, global trade order that's been in existence for decades now. Right. So when we look at just kind of the things that the Trump administration has already kind of put out in their initial documents on what they want to renegotiate, you have both a mixture of the TPP-like type mechanism. So for example, they're talking about expanding um, environmental protection, expanding labor standards, things like that that weren't necessarily covered in the initial round of the NAFTA negotiations. I mean, another one that they're talking about is digital trade, which we've already touched on because that really wasn't even a thing back in the 1990s. But there's also new layers of protectionism slants. So specifically, for example, one of the things they want to introduce is another as an official safeguard mechanism. So the United States have had has had safeguard mechanisms for 40, 50 years now, which are essentially designed to protect domestic industries if imports are causing unjust harm to them, for example. And that would be like a snapback mechanism for tariffs in a sense. The U.S. has tried to do these in the past a couple of times under the WTO framework, the WTO has typically shot them down. But that's a very clear, specific one where Trump has argued that, for example, the steel industry has been decimated by international trade. So if you can put some sort of mechanism in there to protect the steel industry, you can achieve that protectionist slant. And another one that they're talking about is, you know, leveling the fair tax playing field, whatever that is. We know that Trump and his advisors in the past has argued that the VAT tax system, which other countries have, unfairly subsidizes exports. And that's become a big issue for the Trump administration when they talk about the VAT for Mexico, for example. So whatever that level the playing field means, it's obviously unclear at this point. It's pretty vague, but that is something that's been a big key topic that they put out there already on the table. We'll get back to our conversation on the future of global trade in just one moment. But if you find this analysis valuable, be sure to visit us at stratfor.com. Professionals, organizations, and globally engaged individuals turn to Stratfor for objective geopolitical intelligence and analysis that reveals the underlying significance and future implications of emerging world events. 
Individual and enterprise memberships are also available at stratfor.com. Now back to our conversation on the future of global trade. Everywhere you look, you can see a WTO challenge coming the U.S.'s way with estimates ranging from anywhere from $100 billion to $400 billion in, in retaliatory measures over time. And so given the constraints here that would be coming through the WTO from major trading partners like China, Japan, Germany, Mexico, etc., how far can the U.S. actually go in, in its intent, at least, to level the playing field, so to speak? I think one of the biggest limitations that the United States has is that the United States has always been around this kind of rules-based trading mechanism. That was the whole point of the WTO, is you would get China on board with changing their system to fit into the club of global free trade guys who all have the same similar standards and things like that. Now, the Trump administration has argued that that's not the case. The China never actually followed through with their intent. But the point is, is that if the United States wants to then... So one of the big things that the Trump administration has argued for is that it's going to be very, very harsh on um, enforcing existing trade deals, including WTO. So if we're talking about the United States trying to go back from WTO, well, one of the immediate things is that they are trying to use the WTO framework to also enforce these things. So there is a kind of duality there that's really unique. And I think that that's going to be both a, a limiter from the U.S. from action. But when we talk about some of these broader issues that the United States putting into place, for example, the border adjustment tax and then having other countries kind of you know challenge that, it's ultimately going to come down to which countries are actually the ones feeling the pain. That duality point is really key here because I, I, there is a lot of uh, speculation on whether the United States would extend its distrust of multilateral institutions to the WTO and, in effect, ignore WTO rulings if they do not go in the U.S.'s favor. But as you say, the U.S. still working within that framework can actually defend its interests very logically. So there may be some degree of a negotiating tactic here because at, at the end of the day, if you're Germany, you're Japan, China, Mexico, you still at the back of your mind have to deal with this underlying fear that, well, maybe the U.S. won't respect a WTO ruling. So maybe I do need to do more in my bilateral negotiation with the United States. And I that by design, I think, works in favor of, of the White House agenda. Right. And I think that we're going to see the United States kind of pick and choose its battles with WTO. Um, the United States has in the past actually rejected some of the WTO rulings and kept measures into place that the WTO has, has gone against. So for example, right now, the United States and the EU are both working through the non-market economy status court cases under WTO with China. And I think that's one where you would see the United States kind of pull for, or push forward, even if the WTO ruling goes in the favor of China. Whereas if we talk maybe against one specific you know, steel sector agenda item where the United States puts into place barriers. So last week, the United States put into place barriers against a lot of different um, European mainly, and then also Japanese and other steel producers. If the WTO rules against that, the U.S. might you know, step back from that application because it may not fit into the broader agenda that the Trump administration is trying to put forward. In several countries, particularly China, is looking at um, how the U.S. is going to shape its policy on labeling currency manipulators. What can we expect on that front? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 interesting. We're talking about these these constraints on the U.S. because I mean, one of the one of the other aspects is is that actually on on currencies, which is something which which um, particularly um, Donald Trump has, has spoken about, but but members of his cabinet as well. Um, the U.S. is constrained by just by economics, um, in that it is uh, it's it's very hard to make the economic case that um, other other countries are manipulating their currencies right now. 
we're expecting the US um, twice yearly report on um, on uh, the currency review, which will give the US's view on, on who is manipulating their currencies. I mean, S- Steve Mnuchin, the um, Treasury Secretary, has uh, said that they will use the pre-existing measures or the pre-existing framework um, for, for judging a currency manipulator. And if they do that, if they, if they follow through in it in the same way that they have in the last two in, in 2016, um, then the net won't catch anyone um, because uh, there's, there's three different measures by which they are judged um, and, and uh, nobody, nobody exceeds them. So um, China, for example, which is obviously would be the main target, has um, has been actually been supporting its currency rather than rather than um, pushing it downwards, um, while Germany is, has got a weak currency. If anything, because of being a member of the European Union, which is which is not a choice that it's well, it's not a it's a political choice that's made, uh, but it's a much more established structural choice. It's not something they can they can change. So uh, so this is something. It's a constraint from the US perspective. I mean, the other the other possibility if they wanted to try and try and um, change currencies around would be to try and get them on board in a similar way to what they did in 1985, where they managed to persuade all the, all the countries to get together and, and manipulate their currencies together to, to bring to weaken the dollar. But even then, there was a stronger case because um, the dollar had been strengthening against the run of play against the, the the kind of economic flow because the the US economy hadn't been doing so well. So there was an economic case to say, look, the dollar is overvalued. That doesn't exist right now as well. So there are kind of natural laws that the uh, that the US will be bucking against. Um, so I mean, what what you ask, what we expect? I think it's quite possible that they will they will use this um, this this currency review as a as a trigger point and as a as a as an opportunity as an excuse to talk to open the discussion. Um, but the problem that they'll face is that it's 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 very hard to make a, a lasting economic case just on the on the on the platform of currencies. But Mark, I think you bring up an interesting point. Is we are talking about you know Germany, for example, having a relatively weaker currency because just by de facto being a part of the uh, eurozone. Now, one of the, the uh, points that has been argued by figures like Navarro is that Germany is unfairly benefiting for the, fitting from that. And we are talking about the United States actively putting out a policy of leveling the playing field. So one of the things that they can do without explicitly labeling, for example, the Germany as a, as a you know, across the block, uh, manipulating the currency, is they can try to then put into place, say, a currency mechanism or currency manipulation mechanism argument that could then be used by specific industries to bring up anti-dumping and counter duty investigations. So this is something that has been proposed that might be like a soft way of doing it. This is something that the steel sector tried to do in the late 2000s against China. Now, the, the U.S. declined to actually open up that investigation. But if we do see the, this administration more open to the idea of trying to countervail a Germany, for example, advantage, that is something that could be challenged in WTO. And that is something that they can at least put on the board. And it won't look like it's actively coming from the White House, for example. And so that leaves a lot of fodder then for, you know, those those trying to defend the status quo, the existing global trade order, to really come together and try to form a coalition of sorts and in, in trying to resist any big disruptive measures from the U.S. As you say, Matt, in the end, it may just be a much more targeted approach and an, an industry-specific approach, not necessarily openly trying to challenge Germany's position in the Eurozone when Germany is just trying to hold the European Union together. Um, but but th- I think that's the point, right? Regardless of how the U.S. exactly goes about it, it's still throwing out the big punches at this point, which is causing a lot of lar- alarm. And it is representing a collision of imperatives on multiple fronts. China trying to defend its interests at home has big 
priorities in trying to stabilize itself politically, consolidate under Xi Jinping, does not need an exogenous threat like the United States opening a trade war. Same thing for Germany and trying to hold the European Union together. Um, You know, these are all issues that will extend well beyond trade, even if the United States doesn't intend to. So when we think about the security implications and how China will leverage cooperation on things like North Korea, um, maritime disputes in the South China Sea, um, where it can offer carrots and sticks in cooperation or or causing big flare-ups that the United States doesn't want to deal with. That's where the conversation, that bilateral negotiation that the U.S. is intending to keep very focused on trade and how it can benefit the U.S. can very easily expand into much, much more contentious strategic matters that may confound the U.S. In the, at the end of the day. And with all these foreign policy complications for the Trump administration, we also think about all the domestic complications that are going through right now. The health care bill has gone nowhere. It looks like they might be trying to resurrect that, which then could push back the implementation of you know the crown jewel of what Trump has been trying to do for the business sector, which is the tax reform. And then if we keep on pushing back NAFTA negotiations or tax reform bills, that's only going to push back into the midterms in the United States, which means it's going to become much more complicated domestically as well. So definitely there are a lot of political landmines for the Trump administration to navigate to even really get this ambitious trade agenda off the ground. But, you know, it it does raise the question still uh, amongst businesses here in the United States, consumers here and abroad, um, our, our major global trading partner, this angst of how far can the United States actually go in, in in disrupting this global trade order that we've known since the end of World War II that really has been underpinned by the United States. And are we going to see a major overhaul of that? Is the Trump effect an enduring one or is it more temporary? I'd love to hear everyone's views. So I think that it's going to be a mixture of the two. I know that's a complicated answer, but the point is is that a lot of the supply and chain integration, it's something that will have political consequences if the Trump administration tries to disentangle those significantly and quickly. So for example, if the Trump administration does the tariffs against imports of cars for something, which is something that was obviously really popular on the campaign trail, that's going to have then domestic repercussions for specific areas of the auto sector which have benefited from NAFTA, for example. So this is something that's going to then have consequences that will temper it to some degree. But in terms of putting into place conditions like these foundational conditions that could drive a long term shift towards more manufacturing in the United States, whether it be from tax reform or these other kinds of reform initiatives, that is something that can, I think, be more enduring. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the actual political forces behind it are going to be enduring. And I would I would add that global trade is is changing. Um, we're in the midst of a, a fourth industrial revolution and looking at increased automation, increased digitization. Global trade is going to have to respond and going to have to change, just like it changed when the container ship came into to widespread use. But that that's almost independent of a single presidential administration in the United States. And from my perspective, I mean, harking back to what I was saying before, it is it does fit with the uh, with the, with the grand scheme. Um, we have that period which which you which you mentioned of of that kind of post war era. And a lot of that was characterized by this kind of US-USSR um, confrontation when it was potentially easier to get everyone together kind of on one side or the other. Um, and there is a sharp drop-off after the Cold War of uh, intergovernmental organizations being formed because there's kind of, there's in a way, there's less need for it. So we have, it does fit with this kind of the last 30 years, a kind of splintering, a, a, a slowdown in the, in the you know, WTO and, and the, the splintering of, of TPP and TTIP. So... I think 
it fits. Um, whether so, whether Donald Trump is a is a lasting um, phenomenon, he fits into what was already coming, and and he will probably fit into what goes beyond as well. So a real shift may be underway, driven by these underlying forces. But like any U.S. president, this one is not free from constraint. So thank you, Mark, Matthew, and Becca for joining this conversation. That concludes this episode of the Stratfor podcast. If you'd like to learn more about the future of global trade and other underlying forces shaping world events, we'll include links in the show notes. You can also join us at stratfor.com for the latest insights from our analyst team. If you have a question or comment about the podcast or even an idea for a future episode, let us know. You can reach the Stratfor podcast at 1-512-744-4300, extension 3917, or by email at podcast at stratfor.com. And don't forget to leave us a review. We appreciate your feedback, and your review also helps others discover the podcast. It takes just a few moments, and you can leave a review on iTunes or wherever you subscribe to the podcast. And for more geopolitical intelligence, analysis, and forecasting that brings global events into valuable perspective, visit us at stratfor.com or follow us on Twitter, at Stratfor. Thanks for listening. <laughs>